passion, purpose, intention. Take the journey with Ann Richards here on Pep Talk. Hi, I'm Ann Richards, and welcome to Pep Talks Passion Equals Purpose. So my mission in creating Pep Talks was to interview guests who have taken their life's passion and made it essentially their purpose so that we can share their stories with our listeners who then will feel the same inspiration. I'm a life coach, a yoga teacher, a speaker, an exercise enthusiast, and all-around life enthusiast. So my guest today is the incredible Terry Stewart. So most of you may know Terry from his long-term running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in here in Cleveland, Ohio. And he has currently moved on to another venture, which we are going to hear about. Terry, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to be here. Pleasure. Oh, my God. It's amazing. We have so much to talk about because your story is a long It's unbelievable. We may be here all day. I hope the (laughs) listeners have time, you know. So first question, what are you doing now? Well, after I retired from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, my beautiful wife said she married me for better or worse, but not for lunch, <laughs> get a job. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I first took a job at Gibson Guitar in Nashville, commuting for a year to Nashville, which was big fun, working for Gibson until they run into, ran into an awful lot of financial problems. They subsequently went bankrupt, but I got out before then. And then some friends that had supported the Rock Hall here in Cleveland asked me to come to Eldorado, Arkansas, to help oversee uh, a project that was trying to uh, raise the quality of life in a small town, which would allow them to better recruit people to work in their headquarter buildings and their other uh, businesses down there. So I've been down there commuting for six years now, building an entertainment center in Eldorado, Arkansas. And what is the mission of the, so people come and watch musicians or record their produce? No, it's it's an entertainment industry. We we have three phases. We've raised $80 million. We have to raise another $70 million. We've built a very large children's destination playscape, largest in the state, with water and all sorts of design stuff that you climb and jump and do this. And we built a 8,000-seat amphitheater. And we built a 2,000-seat music hall, then a 300-seat restaurant cabaret that's attached. And right now, um, a separate related group is building a, a new lifestyle hotel. And then phase two is an art center. These are all historic buildings, by the way, on some on the National, National Register. And the idea, again, is to raise the quality of life in a small town. This is a town that's very unique. It's a town that has the number one educational promise program in America. Uh, my wife sits on college now here, and everybody models it to some extent after Eldorado, Arkansas, where uh, the Murphy Oil Company is the company that's based there, and they have a nu- it's publicly traded. They have another company called uh, Murphy USA, which people have seen. It's the convenience stores at Walmart. And uh, they have a hard time recruiting uh, young people to come work in their headquarters in a town of 19,000 in the middle of nowhere, go another hour, take a left, take the first start in the morning. That's how far away it is. So So close to the airport? uh, Two hours, hour and a half. Okay. So uh, there's a regional airport there, but to really have a a major airport, it's an hour and a half. And so they they created this, Murphy created this, this, program, this promise program 10 years ago and thought that would really help. And the city built what I think is the most incredible high school I've ever seen uh, where you can major in art and drama. There's a fine arts wing. There's an endowed chair in every department in high school. Um, incredible high school, incredible uh, scholarship program, go to college for free. But it was, still wasn't enough to move the needle far enough. 
couples would come there and one spouse or the other, one partner or the other would say, you know, I either lived in a big city, I went to a big university, this is beautiful, I know my children go to college for free, but I don't know what I'm going to do here uh, the rest of my time when I'm, I'm, you know, leisure time. So we looked at a feasibility study around the region and came up with the idea of basically people want all kinds of entertainment, they want really good food, they want really good service, and they want something for their kids. So we started down this road and we built this. We opened a year and a half ago and we've been programming it. We program it weekly. We program it monthly. We have everybody from Brad Paisley, Migos, Cardi B, um, you know, right now Walk the Moon, Lovely, the band, yeah. uh, the new designs, uh, Brett Young. Um, we have a lot of Christian shows. We have a lot of gospel shows. Cool. Um, so we do a little bit of, and we have, we actually are doing Latin shows because of a very large Latin population there too. So mm. we're covering all the bases entertainment-wise, but it's something that's going to take a long time to build a destination for besides the 19,000 people that live there. Sure. So that's the challenge is continue to market and continue to raise money to finish out the art phase. And then the final phase, phase three, is we have a 1928 vaudeville theater that we're going to redo. That so sounds amazing. It is. And interesting enough, our architect is Paul Westlake, who's from Cleveland. Really? Yeah, Westlake Associates, yes. So if someone wanted to look this up, what was it? What's Is there a website? or what Sure. Eldofest.com. E-L-D-O-F-E-S-T.com. Okay. And they'll see what we do and where we're at and all the pretty pictures. And I invite everybody to come down to Arkansas. Most people haven't been to Arkansas. You probably haven't been to Arkansas. I have never been to Arkansas. Right I'll have to go now. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Thanks for asking. Um, When you came to Cleveland, what, five or six people had tried to run the Rock Hall. Um, And then... You finally came, what, sixth or seventh person? Something like that, yeah. And then you ran it for 12 years? 14 years. So what do you think, what do you attribute that to, the time spent that you did it versus all these people who just well, couldn't get it off the ground? The guys, the, the guys that, I say guys because it was all men ahead of me. Well, Jan Purdy was there. She was interim director. So uh, and she was just a placeholder until they, they found me, but... Um, Two things. One, the folks that had been put in place were individuals that really had no great affinity for the art form or knowledge of the art form. So um, they really, you know, I always say you, you, you wouldn't really hire somebody to run an art museum if they didn't have an art background. And this is an art museum. It happens to be an art of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I think it starts there, but I think it's also I had... I had um, a good board when I got there, and I had to have a better board, and so I was very lucky. I recruited a lot of great um, uh, players in the city, folks that had made a difference here in Cleveland, and they helped me really have a board that could support the museum. And a not-for-profit needs those extra eyeballs and hands from a board to really accomplish what you need, whether it's fundraising or anything else. So um, we always had a good staff, and then I think uh, we were able to uh, increase that staff and increase the quality of that staff and it was just it's a process you know but it, it again it starts with I think to your point about what we're talking about today it starts with a passion the passion is about the music mm-hmm. the music something that has meant something to me uh, I tell people that the helix the DNA helix was broken when I was born and it was broken on mm. that part which relates to music because from the time I was one and two years old that was a focus of my life yeah so you know? what's your what was your first instrument well, I played uh, alto sax worse than Bill Clinton, uh, but uh, 
But what, you love it? Well, yeah, but I, I tell people, and it's hard to believe, that age two and three, I would stop playing in the yard and come in to listen to the radio because uh, my advanced age is way before television. And so far I've had a television that all the musical stars of the day, growing up in Alabama where I did a small town in Alabama, most of them were country. But they had radio shows in the afternoon, late in the afternoon. So I would come into the house and listen to the music. And that drove me from the time I was two and three years old. Not, you know, as much as could when you're growing up, it did. And I went to my first live show in 1949. Which was what? Eddie Arnold, who's one of the more famous country singers. Okay. I sang with him. I sang Big Bouquet of Roses with him. My mother wasn't watching me. I walked down the aisle and started singing. How old uh, were you? I was four. Um, <laughs> and so... Uh, wow, were your parents... Music nuts? No, my mom and dad loved music. In fact, they had once moved to Texas um, so my mother could dance to Bob Wills, famous uh, country swing band. But my father and mother, once I was born, was born at a later age, after right at the end of World War II, that they really didn't spend any time going to dances or anything. It was my father had to find a way to make a living, and it was hard. He had been a seaman. He came home to Alabama, didn't go back to sea, so he had odd jobs the whole time I was growing up. So their life was pretty much built around working and trying to make sure that I survived and did what I was supposed to do. What you know. town in Alabama? Daphne, Alabama. It's uh, on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay. It's a beautiful place to grow up. It's uh, now overpopulated. It was 600, 700 people when I grew up there. Now it's 20, 30,000, and it's all filled with snowbirds and Canadians who want to live somewhere besides Florida. Mm -hmm. So they live on the water in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's great hunting and fishing and seafood and things like that. And the weather's a little more temperate than Florida. And uh, even though it's gotten to be overcrowded, it's still not overcrowded the way that southern Florida is. So so that's where you're, that's where you remember loving music. Yeah, no, I, I started, you know, I, I grew up uh, loving records and Got my first records in 1948. I still have them. Went to my first show in 49. Um, started buying my own records in 51. Um, started going to shows in the mid-50s. Uh, my mother, when I got to be 12, started letting me go to uh, R&B shows by myself, which was a segregated South. I got all black shows by myself. And um, So what would give me an example of who that was? First show I went to was Ray Charles. Awesome. And um, I went over to ask Ray... He was coming down the side. It was a venue that didn't have a backstage. or bringing down the side, and I ran over to get his autograph, and the valet reminded me that he was blind and he didn't sign anything, so I was a little embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I went back to my seat very embarrassed, and this gentleman next to me, black gentleman, said, are you okay? And I explained I was very embarrassed, and he said, why? I know what you need. And I said, what's that? And he said, you need a drink. So he had a brown paper bag, and he pulled out a pint of whiskey and a pistol, put the pistol in his jacket, and then gave me a shot of whiskey. That was my first drink. Uh, oh, my gosh. Then a few minutes later, Ray Charles' valet came over with a postcard signed by Ray Charles. And the story I tell about that is that when I first got here in Cleveland for the Rock Hall, uh, Sally and my wife and I were invited down to uh, be part of the opening of a new theater. A theater had been renovated in Akron, and they had Ray Charles to open it. So they asked me to come MC the show. So I talked about it, Ray's career being inducted, and I told the story about the 12-year-old kid asking a blind guy for an autograph. And oh it's a funny gosh. story. Yeah. And I went backstage to see Ray, and they were laughing their ass off. They couldn't stop laughing. I said, no, it's funny. It's not that funny. And they kept laughing. I said, <laughs> it's not that funny. And the, and, the, and the valet said to me, he said, you don't understand. What's funny is I was the one that signed that postcard, and that was 50 years, 60 years before that. 
Oh my gosh. He'd been right with Ray that long. So that's amazing. So anyway, that that that's the kind of sort of circum uh, the happenstance things that have happened to me. Fortunately, tons I, um, of tons of moments. Yeah, like and I that. got uh, because of that. Uh, uh, we were able to after Ray passed, we were able to get a nice exhibit. We did an exhibit with Ray's stuff. It was also a gentleman locally who worked with Ray Charles's organization, and also um, I was. It was wonderful. I got invited out to the funeral, which is very touching. You know, to go to something like that and mm-hmm. uh, an artist that always meant that much to me. So yeah. But, you know, that again, that goes back, it all ties back to your love and passion right. of this. And right. This is why I wanted you to come, because your story is incredible. This is the beginning, and it's pretty long and windy. Well, no, it's very windy <laughs> because, you know, I... So you went and got how many degrees? Four degrees. And what drove that to explain what the wor- what they were? The well, my, my mom and dad, my, mother, my father uh, was born in New York City. He was an orphan. He was raised in New Jersey. And he um, went to Muhlenberg uh, College for a year and played football, but then the crash hit in 29. He had a scholarship. He felt like he should go. He had papers to go to see, and he decided he should go to see to support the people who had raised him as an orphan. So he went to see, and he eventually put into Mobile, Alabama, which is a big port, met my mother there. And um, my mother ran away from home in the 10th grade in Mississippi to Mobile. She never graduated high school. So I tell people, and this is true, that the first word I ever learned was college. Mm. And the second word I ever learned was scholarship because we had no mm. money. So um, I was always going to go to West Point because I didn't have anybody to tell me how I could go to college for free since I had no money. I didn't realize you could go. And eventually, I can't even recreate exactly how it happened. Uh, I got two appointments to West Point, but I had torn up my legs in high school in sports and motorcycles. And I knew I'd be in trouble at West Point because my legs were in not in great shape Mm -hmm. so I was afraid I'd bust out of there physically so um, I I somehow I applied to Duke which was I got into Duke but I was I didn't apply to Alabama or any of the schools in my state but I didn't get any money and I didn't know how to get money and so somehow my father was raised in Jersey right near Rutgers I'd gone up I'd seen Rutgers and I applied and they gave me a full ride to Rutgers so I went to Rutgers that's the reason I went there and I got two degrees there because um, I didn't, if you were a kid, a male growing up in the 50s and you were good in school, <coughs> usually you became an engineer. So I decided to be an engineer, which was one of the worst decisions I ever made <laughs> in my life. I hated it. But <laughs> Rutgers fortunately had a program where if you took a, just a shitload of credits for five years, every mm-hmm. semester, you got two complete degrees. My second degree was in education, which meant I got to take, you know, I took languages and I took, um, Lit, and I took social, I took psych. I took all the things you normally take in a liberal arts course. Yeah. But I took that on top of the engineering, which made me, kept me sane. Sure. And a then, little more creative. Yeah, well, no, it was, it was more, that was the most interesting part. I mean, I, I actually partly talked my way into, into um, I got into grad school, I got into Cornell, and they had a double program where you got your Juris Doctorate in Law and you got your MBA in Finance, and I got those. Wow. But the way I got there, part I needed money there, too, was I went to the Dean of Engineering and showed him my transcript and showed him how bad my grades were as an engineer and showed him how my good, good grades were as in my other degree. And I, he said, what's your point? And I said, well, actually, you don't want me to be an engineer. I promise you, you don't. And I really need a letter of recommendation, so he wrote me a letter of recommendation. It was salesmanship is what it came down to. So that helped me get over the hump and get into Cornell, and I got a, I got a full ride to Cornell uh, for four years, and I liked it so much I turned it into five years, partly because of music and rock and roll. Um, and I'm, it's a long story, but 
1970, I was in a bookstore in Ithaca, and I saw a book called Sound of the City by Charlie Gillette, and it was the first book I'd ever seen about the history of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And I thought I knew a lot about this. Yeah. And I picked this book up, and I'm reading in the bookstore, and the cover had uh, sort of a family tree on it where everybody had come from. And I I didn't recognize 90% of the names. I said, who are these people? I felt like an ignoramus. And so I bought the book and devoured it and made made lists of people I'd never heard of, and it's 1970, so it's not like you can go on the Internet and listen to them. And you can't even go to a record store because a lot of these people had very obscure records. So that was kind of puzzling to me. And about a week later, my car broke down in a little town called Owego, New York, and I blew a fan belt. And I had $20, and I knew it was going to cost about $15 to fix the fan belt. And in the meantime, I walked into a big, big thrift shop. Now, people in 1970 did not go to thrift shops for fashion. They didn't go there to buy antiques. You went there for day goods and day goods you need to live daily with. Mm-hmm. And over in the corner were thousands of records, thousands. And I was flabbergasted. I'm going through, I'm seeing records I never had, records I didn't know what they were. Saw a couple records that were in guys in the book that I didn't know who they were. And uh, went up to the woman, I had, and I had five bucks, and I said, I don't have any money. Can I make a deal on this? And she said, honey, you see how many of those damn records we got? I said, yeah, you got a lot. And she said, here, I had a box full of about 500 records. She said, here, give me a dollar. So I was dumbstruck, and from that moment on, that became as important, if not not more important, than getting the two degrees. So I spent five, four years, because I extended my program from four to five years, mainly going from Lake Erie, uh, which is east of, uh, east of Ithaca, uh, over by Buffalo, going from there all the way to Boston and searching for records. Mm. I had a girlfriend in Boston, so I just roamed the countryside looking for records. And that was, yeah, but I had no, I had no sense that you could do that, anything around that for a living. So you were just exploring and learning the musicians. That's all I was So doing. most of them you, you had never heard of. No, no. I was finding stuff constantly, finding stuff yeah. constantly. And there's a subculture of people at Clark Records that's mm-hmm. wacky. Yeah. Really, like most subcultures. They're just, yeah. it's off the wall. And yeah. so I, by doing this, I slowly ran into people that were doing this too and met them and then got smarter through them and then more books came out and then I graduated from Cornell and I had to do something so I took one interview after 10 years of college, cut my hair which was down on my shoulders, full beard, the whole bit and uh, became a banker in Hartford, Where? Hartford Connecticut. Again, a terrible decision. <laughs> a terrible so decision. were you st- they just going to concerts on the weekends and listening well, to music? I was, I was, all I wanted to do was get a job that would pay me enough. Well, you got to remember, I, I still, records is where my focus was, but comic books, records, and movies, always. You were obsessed with Yeah, no, pop culture. Okay, so where's comic books, did that start when you were young as oh, well? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what was, the, what was the one you loved? Well, you know, eventually I wound up running Marvel Comics, but Marvel basically didn't exist in the 50s when I'm growing up right. because it's really DC, it's Superman, The Flash, Batman, that sort of stuff. So, But I read cowboy comics. I read the Duck and the Mouse comics. I read mm-hmm. everything, and I had a big collection. Uh, but so it, you got the banking job because that was still in, you know, you had to get, had a, to get degree a job and you had to work and, and you I, make money. I went to one interview. I bought a corduroy suit mm-hmm. and a bow tie, which mm-hmm. is not how you should interview coming out of Cornell. No, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> Bad idea. And but I got a job. But they liked you. Well, I met a guy who had gone to Cornell who was recruiting for the bank, and I played a lot of basketball. And I happened to play basketball with him the night before the interview, and he 
thought I'd be pretty good on the team, the bank's basketball team. So it, it was one of those crazy circumstances where it all came together. Yeah. Um, you know, and tried the best. Yeah. And that just was a path that took you there for a reason. How long did you stay? I couldn't get out of there. Um, it took me five years to get out. Okay. And then I... Um, what did you learn? Well, I, I you know, it was first practice. I mean, I, I had worked in the summers in Alabama as an engineer. I worked in paper mills. And uh, I was a mechanical engineer in paper mills, and I hated every minute of it. So I knew I was never going to do that. And so when I got to the bank, um, I had my MBA in finance, so I got to use my financial knowledge to do that. And, you know, I met a lot of nice people, but I just didn't care for banking yeah. as a product or a service. Right. And uh, the problem is most bankers, if they want to leave the bank, they either get a job in another bank or they get a job with one of their customers. And I didn't like any of the customers I had either. So I started trying to find out how can I go to a different, how can I go up this food chain? And so I started answering ads in the Wall Street Journal. And I was pretty successful in getting interviews. Sure. And I got an interview in New York um, for a company called Continental Group, which was the largest packaging company, Continental Can. And uh, it was with their merger and acquisition uh, and strategic planning group. I had no experience in it, but the guy who was running it um, liked my engineering MBA law degrees. He thought that would be very useful in what we're doing. So uh, <laughs> he, uh, I spent six hours one day. I drove from Hartford to New York down to um, Stanford where I took a train into New York, and I stayed there all day. And then I got back, and I drove all the way back to Hartford, and I got a phone call in my little apartment saying I'd had a really good interview, which I kind of figured I did since I was there all day. But they had a couple issues. And would I drive back to Darien, which is about an hour, 15 minutes south of Hartford, and meet with the head of personnel? Well, it's, now it's 8 o'clock. Okay, get in the car, drive yeah. back, <laughs> and you'll laugh. This is 1978. So the issues they had were, uh, this is a very buttoned-down uh, conservative job in a conservative company, as most things were in those days. And... Um, as I told you, I bought a quarter suit to interview in. Mm. So the longer I was at the bank, the weirder my dressing got. Mm -hmm. But even to them, what was weird was in those days, you wore gray or blue suits. You had one vent in your coat. Okay, I had no vents in my coat. They actually noticed that. And they asked me if I could get a more conservative suit. And then what was a really big one was I'd, um, I'd let my hair grow back at the bank and it was in an afro okay. and um, I cut it for the interview but the problem there was I'd cut it fairly short was they really needed somebody with a haircut that had a part which oh, is the Princeton wow. haircut so oh, wow. they said would I part my hair I said <laughs> thumbs up you got it <laughs> so I mean people think that's not true but it's 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 oh wow so I said put me in coach whatever you need so sure. I went there and um, the guy that hired me was a great mentor um, and he uh, was very good to me. He helped me grow within the company. I eventually wound up running uh, certain departments in, in one of the big divisions there. That company got bought, and if you do mergers and acquisitions and the company gets bought, they shoot the lawyers in your company, then they shoot the guys that do M&A because they don't need M&A. They, they bought you, so they don't need the people. Right. So I went from Continental Group to Combustion Engineering, another wonderful company. <laughs> Both these companies were so difficult for so many reasons, but they were also products and services I could not relate to. Okay. So I'm a combustion engineering. So now you're living in New York. I'm, now I'm, I've moved from New York 
I lived in New York originally, and I moved to Stanford, where Continental moved their headquarters. Okay. And then when they got bought and dismembered, then I moved across town to combustion engineering, mergers and acquisitions, strategic planning, and they got bought. So I got mm. I actually got lost my job again, and uh, <laughs> this time, I um, the marriage wasn't going so well, and so um, I couldn't fix anything. I couldn't get a job. I was waiting and waiting to get a job. So I finally just decided I'm going to leave the marriage and just adios. I'm gone. And um, a great story that happened to me is I went I, uh, I went to a bar with my mm-hmm. assistant who lost her job too. Okay. And she was moving to California to finish her degree and everything. And so uh, the guy that owned the restaurant, I'm telling the story about what had happened to me. And I also called my best friend who was the best man in my wedding who lived in Hartford, which is an hour north of there, and I need a place to stay. And... Um, he, it was silence, crickets on the phone. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, Terry, I have, I, he had a five-bedroom penthouse apartment. He was very successful. He said, I have a new girlfriend. It'd be very awkward. I said, John, I have any place to live. I just left, and I, I work, and crickets again. So basically, hmm. I uh, expletive, deleted, hung up the phone. So you know who your friends that are. That was the end of my, end of my friendship, friendship with him. Mm-hmm. Went to the bar with my assistant, started drinking. Yeah, and a bartender was listening to this story about my best man losing losing my job. My best man won't take me in. The bartender says in his broken English, "You know that's a bad story. You come live with me." So I said, "You don't know me." He said, "I got a big house." Well, he wasn't a bartender. He owned five restaurants in Fairfield County. So he's off the boat immigrant who'd been incredibly successful. Took me in, and I lived with him for a year uh, because I had no place to go. I had no job. I did Uh, a little consulting. What an angel. Oh, no, no. And uh, during that time, um, the headhunter that I was working with knew that I had this passion for pop culture. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to find another M&A job, merging acquisition job. Came close a couple times. And then he got the assignment to find the next president of Marvel Comics. And he knew I had a comic book collection. I had this record collection, and I lived inside of pop culture. And he said, you'd be perfect. I went, I looked around the room like, Really? And I thought, well, yeah, maybe. Um, I never thought, it's, again, this is about passion, but sure. as I tell people, don't back into your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I backed into this. I mean, I did things right with the degrees and the business and all that, but it wasn't focusing on where I should go. Right. And I kept taking these jobs because they were there and because they were good paying. All the reasons people, half the reasons people take jobs for most of the time. So, sure. um, the company was owned by Ronald Perlman, who's a very famous financier who owned Revlon and a bunch of other companies. And they were looking for somebody to run Marvel who had a transactional business background, which I did, and who was a collector and would run it also as a collector and as uh, someone who loved the art. Mm-hmm. And I always joke and say they interviewed for a long time. They interviewed me, and I think I scared them because I started talking about all the things I wanted to do, trading card companies and blah, 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 blah. And... Um, took nine months for me to get this job. So fortunately, this guy, I was living with this guy for nine months during that period. And I eventually get the job, and, you know, and then the rest, as I say, is history. I was there for seven years. We unfortunately had a very difficult ending because of some things that happened with the financing of the company. Um, and eventually it goes bankrupt. And when it goes into bankruptcy, I wind up working for somebody who took over the company I was on the board of directors. We'd gone public, and um, it was just a hot mess. And so 
Did you love your time there? Oh yeah, no, I was, it was, it was, it, it, this is where I start telling people what you're lo really looking for, here's the payoff. You know, when you, when you go to work and do what you love, really love it, not just like it, love it, and it's inside of you, um, you don't go to work. Right. Every day's a weekend, every day's a vacation, and you don't go to work, you leave home and you go somewhere else. And you do things. But Is that not. how you started to feel there? Oh yeah, for the absolutely. first time. Oh yeah, you don't even, you don't you never look at the clock. You never think about what day it is. You don't think about vacations. You know, you just you, you put your head down and mm -hmm. you're just trying to think of any way you can make the company a, a successful. Any way the product can be more important. It can sell more. You can you know. And you know, it was just a, a, a revelation. I mean, I I I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd said it to myself, but I never was smart enough to figure it out. And fortunate enough, this headhunter, whom I knew very well, you know. He was the one that said, you know, you'd be perfect for this. And fortunately, they agreed with me. It was, you know, it was, it was, it changed my life. It was, and obviously it's fun and everybody knows what's happened to Marvel since then. It's gotten to be gigantic. Um, you know, I, I, I played a small role in the beginning of it as it grew. We sold more comic books uh, when I was at Marvel than anybody's ever sold. And they never will sell more, more than that because comic books, fungible hard copies just don't, they don't exactly. sell, that's not, they're important, but they're not important like they were. I mean, we broke all the records for comic sales in the late 40s. In the late 40s, comics had a 90% household penetration. They were everywhere. Then as TV came on in the early 50s, um, kids started walking away from a little bit, and then there was a big problem with the content of comics, and a lot of the publishers in 1953 went out of business because the government sort of regulated them about drugs, uh, kidnapping, mm -hmm. horror, and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So they had to come back, and they came back, and when Stan created all these characters in the early 60s and Marvel started going to rise. That's when the comics came back. They kept growing through the 70s and the 80s. Comic book shops came along. And so I was the recipient of that. They'd been around about five or six years. People always used to buy them on the newsstand. Yeah. And so comic book stores became the specialized place where you could find every comic and more than you ever thought existed. And it created new publishers. And then by the time I got there, Batman, the movie, had taken off. And that was the reason that Ronald Perlman, one of the reasons he, he wanted to be in the entertainment business, but they saw an opportunity to buy Marvel, which by and large had been as successful or not more successful than DC, which is Batman Superman, in the recent years. So he thought, boy, we can take this and grow that and turn it into a media powerhouse. That was the whole idea. Wow. Yeah. So So is that when someone came knocking on your door about the Rock Hall? Was the time No, right? I, I finally had to leave there because it was such a hot mess and it had gotten taken over by other people. And so, of all things, I was working for Ronald as a consultant and doing some stuff in entertainment for him and still living in Connecticut. And one day, one of my fraternity brothers who lives in Pittsburgh called me and said, I just saw your next career. Mm. And I said, what? And he said, oh, this morning in the Wall Street Journal, I'm, I'm a, I read three, four newspapers every day, including now. Okay. And I always read the journal. Yeah. And I had read the journal that morning. I didn't see anything. Well, as it turns out, being in Connecticut, I had, like, the two-star version, the early version. He in Pittsburgh had the three-star version. Uh. So Tuesday is the day the one ads were in the journal. Above the one ads, though, was a human interest story, which was about the Rock Hall job. And he had read that. And he said, that's, that's got to be your next. Once again, I didn't think of it. I never, never conceived of the fact there might be something called running the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. And so I immediately did everything in my power. I found out who the, they had a search firm that was doing it. I started sending resumes, um, 
my my wife whom I just started dating had made a video of my house which is filled with jukeboxes, posters, records. Yes. It's a you know, it's a shrine to rock yes. and roll. And finally the uh, headhunter here in Cleveland called me and said, Please do not send anything else. We know where you are, we know who you are. Uh. And um fortunately, um Jan Winter was one of the one of the founders of the Rock Hall. Ran Rolling Stone magazine. Sure. And Jan knew Ronald Perlman. Got and it. he knew, uh, Ronald also knew Ahmed Erdogan, who was the other founder at Atlantic Records. So at least on a one-on-one basis, they had a recommendation from Ronald that I knew what I was doing and I, I was a good businessman and that I knew pop culture inside and out. So yeah. that shortened that process. That process, once I got in the pipeline, was very short. It was the shortest of any job interview I ever had. And I was here within like a month, month and a half, maybe 30 days, I got the job. And I got here in December of 98, it started officially January 1, 99. So were you jumping for joy? Oh, yeah. Was yeah. it, was well, it like it's hard, Well, it's hard to imagine. I just walked out of what I thought was the greatest the find in my life. Yes. And here was one that, whether it was going to be as good or better, but it certainly had the potential because of how it played it on my heartstrings. Yeah, yeah. And again, same thing. I mean, you don't, once you do that, um, and once again, I got a chance to do it again. So... That, you know, 14 years there and seven or eight years at Marvel, you know, you suddenly got a career that was meaningful, hopefully in what you did to the outside world, but very meaningful to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I just advise people, young people particularly. Um, And it's hard. I mean, a lot of the jobs that people want, these passion jobs, whether it's movies, comic books, or records, the business pyramid's very small. So there's not a lot of jobs. Right. It's hard to get them because a lot Mm -hmm. of people want very few jobs. And you have to be, sometimes you need to be creative. You need to be, have a background. You need something, bring something to the table. But like we had some folks that were, wanted to be at the Rock Hall so bad. We had a couple of people that had uh, bachelor's degrees. I think we had one had a master's degrees that agreed to take a job, minimum wage, walking the floors as a service rep at the Rock Hall, so they'd have a chance to get inside the offices and be in curatorial or something else. So that, you know, it tells you again, do what you gotta do to be, where to be able be. to do what you wanna do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's still the, still the same as you gotta take jobs, whether, you, whether you're gonna move to Nashville and you wanna be in music, you gotta be a waitress or a waiter in the sure. meantime, and you do that until, until you get a chance. And then you start networking like everybody tells you, mm-hmm. you know, and you, but if you really want it bad enough, you know, you, you, you understand how it works. So. How did you, how'd you feel about coming to Cleveland? Oh, um, it's funny. My wife and I, we just we got married right before we came, literally the day before we came. And um, she was very ready to change her life. Uh, we both loved Connecticut. Yeah. It's a beautiful state. Uh, but uh, and I loved living in New York, which everybody should live in New York once, and yep. I lived there twice. I did that. <laughs> yes, and um, I was also ready for a change, and I never, I mean, I knew the bad stories about Cleveland, but I also been around a block time or two to know that every city has an awful lot to, to offer, and until you live there, you don't really understand it. Now, some cities are more interesting to you than other cities just based on your personal interests. But right. we never had any issue about moving here. My friends in New York and Connecticut, oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you're gonna do what? And even and when my friends would come to visit from New York or Connecticut, mm-hmm. their friends would make fun of them. Right. And God forbid if they came twice. Right. You know, and, you know, we were lucky. We had a house on the lake, so I would 
bring people in from New York. I'd stand them out. We had a beach living in Brattonall. I'd stand them out, and I'd say, look out here. Welcome to the Midwest. Yeah. Because people think the Midwest is a bunch of cornfields. And, and cows. Yeah, exactly. And so then they see the lake, and they yeah. say, you live on an ocean. Yeah, this ocean. Isn't a lake. And by the way, there's seven <laughs> islands out there. Yeah. And Kid Rock was just out there. Yes. And I mean, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, once you start telling the story, in fact, one of my friends, um, my wife and I did a, a piece they wanted to do a piece on one of these old houses, and we had one of these giant houses on the water. And I agreed to do it if they would do a piece on the Rock Hall, and it was on the Travel Channel. And uh, cool. this is like 19, maybe 2000, 2001, something like that. And I, you learn that you don't want it to be strictly about yourself. It's, it's just it, that never works out. It never, it always it makes some people mad. It makes you appear to be more ego-driven than anything else. But they said they would do a big piece on the Rock Hall, which yeah. I thought was important. And a funny thing was, it was called the Lost Islands of Lake Erie. And it was, they did, did the islands and they did our house and they did the Rock Hall. And it was really funny because I had a couple of friends see that on the Travel Channel. And they go, I want to come to Cleveland. I said, yeah. You bet. So <laughs> they came here and we took them to Rock Hall and we took them out to Putin Bay and, you know, spent, spent the weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you really, you know, you know what it's like here. Yeah. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to understand until you've lived here. Absolutely. And did you... When you came to the Rock Hall, what was your biggest challenge initially? Well, we we were in tough shape financially, mm-hmm. uh, and we needed to. The board was had some great members, but we needed to add some more great members, so we had to redo the board. Uh, and you know, raising money and raising attendance. Attendance um, attendance is really uh, more of a function of the city and it's tourism and it's business travel than it is anything else because the Rock Hall is such a great institution it draws from around the world. So every major city in America has got a quarter percent, a half percent people that come here. Okay. Um, every country, they got, it's a hundred countries every year, um, you know, and you, you, there's no way you can promote or advertise to all those. You can't, there's no way to promote or advertise to all these cities and countries that were here. So you, you keep the museum new and fresh. You do new exhibits for PR purposes, which is earned media, free free advertising. Sure. And you just remind people that you're there. It's the yeah. same reason I did satellite radio while we have Sirius coming out. of just broadcasting around North America, mm-hmm. coming out of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. But the main thing is, and what's, what's really great, is that you know now that the city has really become what it sh- you know much more what it should be considered to be, this wonderful small big town that has so much to offer yeah and with with the advent of lebron coming home and the championship and the rnc and all the stuff that dave gilbert's done with rebranding i was lucky enough to work with him a little bit on that all that has changed the profile of tourism here and business travel here and ergo there are more and more people that come to cleveland more and more people come to the rock hall right and And now you have baker mayfield yeah yeah no that's no the browns Browns, and and (laughs) greg my successor i hired greg uh harris he was at the baseball hall of fame he's done a great job of growing the rock hall and then changing and adding more onto it so it's continued to be fresh and new yeah and now we've got a bigger audience to appeal to Mm -hmm. and um, as you say with the brown it's you know with the Browns and when the Cavaliers are hot or the Indians when they're hot, yeah. people come here all the time. More and more people come here and they go back. People go back and tell them, that's a really great city. You ought to go visit. You ought yeah. to go visit the Rock Hall. You ought to go see, you ought to go see a sp- uh, ball game because you know yeah. how it's easy to see a ball game here. Unlike a lot of major cities, it's not a big deal to get a ticket here. And 
get around from the hotel, go to the, it's not, you know, and the art museum, the orchestra, the Museum of Natural History. Yes. Um, I mean, you, you, you go on and on here about what. The location what, is phenomenal. Oh, it is, yeah. We just did a giant yoga event there last Friday night, um, Interbliss Yoga Studio, which is where I work. Um, for now, how many years? Seven or eight years, we do something called Believe in Klee. Hmm. And there's about 1,400 yogis out there led by Tammy Lyons, who takes them through a practice. And the rock hall is very involved because it's in front. Yep, yep, yep. So the the aerial views sure. are amazing. Fabulous, yeah. And they, I know that Greg has been terrific in working yep. and then promoting the whole weekend, and everyone sure. gets a free ticket. And it's just... Oh, and it works. Everybody wins. Yes. Everybody wins. And I think it's so nice when you have gracious leaders who understand that the value of that. So it's... Yeah, being a civic park. In a civic partner to both uh, not-for-profits and for-profits and all the groups is a great way to both be part of this city, which in this city, that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we collaborate, we partner with people, we want everybody to succeed and win. We don't, we don't, we don't have to tear people down to build, build ourselves up here. I mean, right. I, I felt, you know, it, I've always said that this, this, as we all know, people, people used to say, what's the best thing about Cleveland? Midwest and it was always the people. Sure. But it's not it's not incorrect. The people are uh, they come from a different place. They come from a different uh, mindset. And by and large, these folks all when you come here, everybody's so welcome to me and Sally. Uh, we got involved with so many boards and, and opportunities to do things in a in, in a meaningful way that we probably couldn't do in Chicago or someplace that was like that. We'd be foreclosed. We'd have to live there a long time. But yeah. there, everybody was looking, would you help us? Can you be part of this? Would you like to be part of this? Sure. And, you know, you know how it is here. And and, and even the yoga groups and things like that, whether it's the, the churches, the NAACP, uh, Esperanza, all these different organizations, how can you, if you're in a position, how can you guys partner? How can you make a difference? Right. And that's the way it should be. And I, I think that's the way Cleveland is. Do you have a... Um something about what you're most proud of your time at the rock hall oh i i i think just the fact that we've i think we've made made the museum uh, what we always wanted it to be i mean you know and it's not you know it's not me that the board and now greg is continuing that tradition so i mean it's it's just knowing that was it was it was so difficult to get it here it came so close to dying so many times and yeah. it nearly died. Yeah. It nearly got shut down by the powers to be when we mm-hmm. first had a chance. And then some people, uh, some major people, uh, one of the great uh, individuals who was a big uh, supporter who really turned the corner for us was Albert Ratner. Yeah. He really made a difference and, and that helped us get past one point. And then um, later on, um, they couldn't raise the money because the project went from 20 million to 100 million. And the Port Authority, uh, I forget the gentleman who ran it, was very one of my heroes, realized that they could they could issue bonds, and so they got the ability to raise the other $40 million we needed to build it. And then after we opened, people just unfortunately did not read the studies that said this will open at a certain level of attendance, and it will decline, as they all do. And yeah. every, everything like this does. And it'll reach an equilibrium, and then at some point, uh, hopefully you find a way to build it back up, which is what's happened now with the advent of the city being healthier and having more people coming here. But, you know, we had to go through all those phases. Yeah. And that was, you know, next year will be the, uh, is it next year? Yeah, next year is the 25th anniversary. Oh, my gosh, that's a giant deal. 
Yeah, it's a big deal. Do you still go to the induction ceremonies? Oh yeah, I, I, I because of my work schedule, I don't go in New York. Mm-hmm. But because being home here on the weekends and uh, I, I, I mean, I get invited. And very fortunate, Greg invites me, so I'm lucky yeah. I get to go. Yeah, and we're back here next year, and they're here every other year. Um, so you were just on an incredible podcast, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. Yep. And the nature of your discussion there was, please share. <laughs> well. I don't know how he got down, went down this rabbit hole, but um, it is a rabbit hole. Well, and again, everything <laughs> in pop culture. I mean, once you start talking about artists or you know some genre or something, you know, I could sit here and 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 regale you and put you to sleep with stories from now till the cows come home about almost anything you could you could choose. But he wanted to talk about um, artists like Pat Boone, and um, that extends into the the crew cuts and the crew cuts came out of Cleveland for the most part uh, through Bill Randall and one of the other famous disc jockey who was a, who was as famous momentarily as as Alan Freed and he wanted to know should they be these artists be inducted and would they ever be inducted and I said well I understand why they should be because for instance little Richard uh, used to say he was so glad that Pat Boone did his music because at this point in time Race was still such a huge issue on radio, and radio stations were siloed. Freed was one of the few jocks around America that was playing black records on white stations. And in the South and other places where, where Rich, Little Richard would not have been played on the big stations, Pat Boone recorded his songs and they got played there. So Richard, uh, he got paid for writing it, uh, and he also became more famous because everybody found out that he did the original. So I could see a foundation for that, but a lot of the people that um, are uh, involved with the induction process, which I was for many years, um, feel very strongly that uh, we cannot really applaud those people, that more or less they, uh, ext- they appropriated that culture and they, they, they won't be forgiven for that. So right. anybody can have a different mindset. Should you recognize that these white artists elevated this art form when it needed elevating to be more legitimate? Uh-huh. And then they disappear, right. which they did. Right. And then the real artists take over. You can make an argument either side, but mm-hmm. I told uh, Malcolm, I doubt, I have, I have my doubts it'll ever happen. It would, yeah. not, it would not upset me or terrify me if it did, because these, it's the history of rock and roll. Sure. And they are part of the history of rock and roll. And they played a big role for a short period of time in that history. So, you know. I think it's a really cool concept he has going. Oh. How did you find him? He found me. I just got a. But I how got, did you find him as a person? Oh, he was very. Uh, he was. He was lovely. Uh, we had a great conversation. Um, there was no um, adversarial situation on the mic. He was on the telephone. I was in Arkansas, and uh, I thought it. Was, I thought it was very enjoyable. Um, I, I'll leave it to you to listen to it. I've yeah, never, I never. I don't wait. listen to that stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't listen to any of the things I do, so I won't listen to this either. Uh, sorry. I, Full disclosure. That's yeah, good. No, no, I don't watch videos. I, people tell me I've still got crazy videos on right. YouTube, but I'm, I'm watching and I don't do that stuff. So I, I'm I'm just thrilled that I get to talk about um, rock and roll. In fact, I uh, had an interesting day yesterday. Bill Farron, who's working with Norman Knight. Do you know who Norman Knight is? Wait a minute. I do. I recognize the name Norman Knight. What was he? Well, Norman Knight was a big disc jockey here okay. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then he wanted to be a huge disc jockey and sorcerer. He wrote, uh, he wrote books about where the stars came from. And uh, he, he, 
he was on all the talk shows in the 70s and 80s. He went to New York, became a very famous disc jockey there. He eventually was on satellite here. Well, he is writing with uh, uh, Mr. Farron. He's writing a uh, the history of the Rock Hall. Oh, wow. And it hopefully will come out. Um, I think uh, they told me yesterday that it will come out next fall for the 25th anniversary. Yeah, and so you have to be a big part of that. Yeah, well, and I got to, I got to be, you know, we interviewed, we talked about my, my stint there mm-hmm. and that, but I, I people, it's such a strange thing to give you, I'll give you just a small rabbit hole you'll never want to go down again, that the first record was Rock and Roll and the title is, comes out in 1923. Okay. And Little Richard and Bill Haley and Elvis and Chuck Berry, they aren't, they're the sort of flashpoint of rock and roll, but this starts long before it's an African-American art form. The term rock and roll is used extensively in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And in the 40s, there are a gazillion records with rock and roll in the title. Long before we hear about Alan Freed or anything else, that's where Freed got it from. He okay. knew the term. Okay. But of all things, this first record in 1923, My Daddy Rocks Me with One Steady Roll. So it's about ah, sex. Okay. by. Uh, only black women recorded the blues right at the beginning of the blues reading record in the early 20s. She was one of those, Trixie Smith. But this record actually became very popular, and it also is the foundation for um, Rock Around the Clock because in it, in it, in the record, she actually talks about what she's doing at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. So it's another oh 40 years gosh. for the song Rock Around the Clock. But what's even more interesting that I didn't know until I've been here a few years is that we talked about cover artists like the Crew Cuts and Pat Boone. Well... In 1925, which is two years after this record is recorded by Trixie Smith, this original uh, African-American artist, in 1925, right here in Cleveland, Ohio, Harold Ortley and the Ohio State Collegians covered that record with a white version of it. Oh, wow. And that happens, you know, that happens 40, 50 years before Freed coins a phrase here mm-hmm. or before somebody's looking for a reason to build a rock hall here. Because you can, you can make a real good argument that Memphis, because of... Um, the music coming up the uh, coming up the river, Elvis, uh, so much had happened in Memphis, uh, uh, white and black races joined together in music. You could argue very, in Sun Records, you can argue easily that Memphis should have been home rock and roll. And they Absolutely. thought so. And they yeah. fought desperately for it, and they yeah. failed miserably. And mm-hmm. if you know the story, we had a phone call by on USA Today, the paper, after we were awarded the rock hall, USA said, that's ridiculous. There's got to be a town that more wants this than, than Cleveland. So... They mounted this phone call for 50 cents. You called oh my in, gosh. and um, everybody assumed we'd lose. And the people here in Cleveland magnificently got behind it. The radio stations got behind it. Everybody got behind it. So, at the end of the day, there was 110,000 calls from Cleveland. And there were 7,000 from Memphis. So, they're still yeah, they're That's still they're still struggling. Right? They're still struggling Always. over that Memphis. We have such so, good fans here. We do. Of everything. Yes. Yes. And. Um, I love the story about the Ray Charles. Do you have anyone else that the, the, the celebrity encounter was off the charts or the coolest encounter with an artist? Um, well, I, yeah, I've, I've been lucky. I, I, I tell people that as the head of the Rock Hall, there were reasons to meet artists and talk to them. There were other reasons just to meet them. And you have to be very careful about being gushy and saying too much because they've heard everything a thousand times and I always said that as the head of the Rock Hall I was the guy that took care of their stuff Mm -hmm. and I I tried to play down you know I I think that's the way to look at it and to memorialize you and take care of your name and you know we we are proud that you entrust us with that with all that um so um I told you that um 
uh, Eddie Arnold I sang with in 1949. Well, he was honored by the Kennedy Center of the Arts, and I got to go to the White House for the dinner. And he was sitting over in the corner by himself early in the evening, and nobody was talking to him. I don't think anybody really recognized. He was 87 years old. Oh, my goodness. And so I walked over and sat down, and I poured my heart out about the fact that I had loved him. I bought his records. I even had one of my friends in Cincinnati was able to get me the transcriptions of the radio shows I listened to from 1946 to 1950 on CD. So I have those. I can actually listen to the shows I listened to as a kid that inspired me. And I, I just went on, and I, as I just said to you, be careful about doing this because you pour your heart out, and Eddie Arnold's wonderful gentleman, <laughs> really one of the nicest men in country music and probably one of the biggest selling artists of all time, he looked me right in the eye during this story. He put my, his hand on my shoulder, gave me that little squeeze, and he said, son, do you know what time supper is? <laughs> so I was, see, that's... You know, back to reality. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> you're know, having the moment. Yeah, I mean, who was the president at the time? Um, it would have been, I think it was been Bush. Okay. Uh, because there was a, a lady on my board, um, H. H. Leonard's, whom I met in D.C., who was very, very helpful and instrumental, helped me raise a bunch of money. She's still on the Rock Hall board. Um, she uh, invited me to a bunch of things in D.C., and uh, it happened to be that night, and it was really a funny night because. Um, she has a way of combining people and putting people together that's really almost supernatural. Um, and it happened to me a number of times with her. But that night we were at the dinner table and Eddie Arnold wasn't there. We were sitting next to the Bergmans. The Bergmans are very famous composers. They wrote The Way We, the way we oh, Were, yeah. uh, Windmills of My Mind. Mm -hmm. Lovely couple, very yeah. famous. And they're sitting over here. And H, and H is her real name. H is her real name. Little H. And so she's sitting between me and the Bergmans, and she's talking to them, explaining who I am. And they explained to her that rock and roll really wasn't their cup of tea. And so the woman sitting next to me was, she was throwing back the scotches, and she and I were having a great time. And she was, she was older, and um, she said, where are you from? And I said, a little town in Alabama you never heard of. She said, I've been around. Try me, you know. And um, I said, they asked me Alabama. She said, me too. No. She was like Miss America from 1940-something who had gotten invited to the dinner. So I, I tell that story because H was very important to, she helped me uh, find the money for the John Lennon exhibit when we got that. It, really, it was right at the early on when we were struggling for yeah. financially, and she helped me find the money for that. So, so have you met most of those big artists who have their um, guitars, clothes, I met, I met a mm -hmm. lot. I met a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I people ask me like you asked me, and um, I think meeting because the Beatles were very important to me. Meeting Paul McCartney uh, for the first time, and again, being on a mission, I met him when he was inducted individually, mm -hmm. and he wasn't going to come to the inductions in New York, and then he wasn't going to talk, and then he wasn't going to sing, and as the night went on, and he got happier about everything. Um, he jumped on the stage and sang, and he was at an after party. But he had gotten, he had gotten us the rights, uh, Linda, his late wife. By the way, the Eastman family is from Cleveland. She was an Eastman. And oh, so there was a connection. There was a connection okay. back to Cleveland. And um, Linda had this, she was a photographer. That's how she met yeah. Paul. She had this ph photograph exhibit. He put it together in, after her p passing. And it, it opened in a small museum in Greenwich, Connecticut. And so 
I had called there, and then they had said, talk to Paul. So we talked to Paul, can we get it to Rockwell? So I came here to the next rock. And then Paul had agreed that when it stopped touring, that we could have all the photographs, which was nice. To Very put nice. A, put them in our archives and library. So that night when I was going to meet Paul, I had a chance to meet I wanted to go over, and the main thing was go to say hi, Terry Stewart, Rock Hall. Thank you for your generosity for all that. Yeah. And so I'm standing there, and I'm waiting to say hello. And I've been on another board. I've been on the Rhythm and Blues Foundation board since the early 90s, and we take care of old R&B stars. And on that board, extraordinary board, um, on that board was um, Etta James, Chuck Jackson, Jerry Butler. Um, mm, I'm having a brain fart now. Uh, long-term friend, uh, red-headed blonde singer inducted, um, got a white streak in her hair. Bonnie Wright. Bonnie Wright. Oh, yeah. she'll kill me if she hears this. <laughs> I forgot her name for a minute. She's been such, she's been so good to the Rock Hall yeah. and been such a good friend for so long, but she's standing there. I go over and she sees me, she says hi to me, and then I'm waiting to say hello to Paul, and Paul's arguing with the guy, the lead singer of the County Crows, not arguing with discussing songwriting. And suddenly he looks over at me, and I had on this wild um, Gautier tuxedo jacket with rhinestones. He looks over, and he looks, and he goes, hi, I'm Paul McCartney. He introduces himself to me, mm-hmm. and and I thank him for the uh, for the Linda exhibit. And then he grabs the lapel of my jacket, and he goes, nice piece of schmata, young man. And I, th- <laughs> I said, a beetle. Told me oh. <laughs> like that close. So, I mean, that I just tell that story because it's, oh, I uh, love it. Uh, yeah, it, it meant something, and I tell the story that I, I met Fats Domino a couple times, and uh, before he passed, and we did some stuff with him in New Orleans, and he had early Alzheimer's, but he always dressed himself every day, and he was so sharp. And one day he came down to me. He went. Second day I was there, he goes, "You mighty clean, mighty mighty clean." So it was, you know, that those kind of things where it's it's, it's sort of. Uh, off the cuff yeah and those those are the conversations and because of some of the older artists there's not as much attention to pay to and I have such a love of those early days of rock and roll and such a strong knowledge of it I was able to um, often get have a better relationship with some of those Mm -hmm. because they have less going on you know they're they're always looking for it and I couldn't help them but I you know I would try to help them in certain ways and that sort of thing so you know, it it just was rewarding. It's so rewarding to know, to know some of the people that I idolized as a kid. Yeah. You know, and a, only fewer and fewer are alive now because it's been, you know, it's been seventy years now. Sure. So you know, it's it's. Um. What. What is one of your favorite or best concerts? I know that's got to be. Oh oh, I I have a couple. I have a couple. Um. I um. You'll laugh when I tell you this. One artist, one group, two shows of all things. I saw the Bee Gees. I love the Bee Gees. In 1967. This is way before Saturday Night Fever. Okay. And I saw them with a very large orchestra. And I love their harmonies. And this is New York Mining Disaster, Massachusetts. Um, I started a joke, all those songs. Oh, my gosh. And I love those songs. And I saw them... Um, I saw them in Asbury Park, which is where Springsteen is mm-hmm. sort of located. And then I saw them again in Madison Square Garden for, you know, Saturday Night Fever. So those two mm-hmm. shows. Now, they actually play a role in the third show. Uh, my wife 
loved them and loved Saturday Night Fevers. Most of us did. And they had a 20th anniversary show of Saturday Night Fever at the Forum, which is the theater at the Garden in New York. Okay. And at that show, in fact, we had tickets to see it. They originally were going to do the show at Odyssey, is it Odyssey 2000, which is a disco in Brooklyn. Okay. Where they actually filmed the, sh- the movie. Mm-hmm. And they actually had a, a small hurricane come through and flood the place, so they had to postpone it. When they did it, the next time they did it in a bigger venue, which is the Forum Theater, they had every artist there, every artist that sang in Saturday Night Fever was there. The Tramps, oh Yvonne Ellen, the Bee Gees, and they sang all these songs, so it was like magic. Now, I, 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 mean, I saw Elvis a couple times, and that was, that was fabulous. I mean, you know. Um, oh, my gosh. So, Elvis. So, you know, and I'll tell you, um, I begged people to go when the foundation in New York, our other half of the Rock Hall, when they put on the 25th anniversary for the beginning of the inductions, okay, which was a few years ago, and they had two nights of shows, and they got the major, some of the ma- biggest stars in the world to curate their section of the show, like um, um, Bono brought Springsteen, he brought Jagger, all this, so they were all at the garden, <laughs> and I begged people to go to that show. And that we you put had out, to beg? Well, no, I see. You know, I see. Even if you only buy a cheap ticket in the top of yeah. the garden. Go and I had friends went that say on, and that's the the foundation and put out a DVD, which the museum got the proceeds from. So it raised a lot of money for the museum. Yeah. But it was just, I mean, you have you have to see it, um, because when the U two anchored the second night, Springsteen anchored the first night. But like Paul Simon was there, and he brought out among others, he brought out, um, uh, Lonely Anthony the Imperials. He brought mm-hmm. out Dion. Yeah. You know, these are 50s, actually. They, sure. they brought out things. And um, so you had people curating these different sections. Um, Bonnie came out. She was with somebody. I mean, it was just it was just everybody. It was it was rock and soul and everything. You know, so it was are wonderful. you still going to a lot of shows now? As many as I can. I mean, being in Arkansas and being a little bit isolated, I got all our shows. But yeah. it's a little harder. Yeah. 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 I. Uh, I kid about one of the best shows I've seen recently. And people laugh at me when I tell them. Was, and my that? wife loves this guy, and I love this guy, even though he's made fun of. Everybody makes fun of him. You know a song, Never Gonna Give You Up, by Rick Astley? I played it probably one week ago in mm-hmm. yoga class, because well, I do like Rick Astley, Cry for Help. Mm-hmm. Well, he had, a, he had a number of hits, but he was playing the House of Blues one Sunday night. Yeah. And I said, we got to go. Sure. And it was his 50th birthday. He was touring the world, just put out a new album. Stunning voice, great voice. Great, but I always distinguish between singers and performers. He comes out on the stage and he says, okay, uh, I know there's a lot of husbands here that don't want to be here. And if you don't want to be here, I know also the only thing you want to hear is never going to give you up because the only song you know I ever did. He said, I do that last. (laughs) So I know if you want to catch an Uber or a bus and go home, uh, I'm going to sing the chorus right now. So he sang the chorus and he finished it up. He said, okay, if you want to hang around, I'll do that last. And then just highlights he he did a rihanna mashup song of all things he's talented that oh guy. no and he said he said he'd just done that recently for the first time in london and his daughter was there she's 26 oh. 27 he was so proud he'd done yeah. this rihanna yeah. song and she came up to him backstage she grabbed him and hugged him and said don't ever do that again <laughs> <laughs> 
Leave it to your kids. Yeah, and then just it, to make you feel even older. At the end of the show, <laughs> he explained that I never knew this. He was in rock bands until he was 14. He played the drums. And so he said every show he does, he makes the audience pick a song they never expect that he played as a kid. So um, he got behind the drums, and they picked Highway to Hell by ACDC, and he sang that, which so you can see the range of what he did. So yeah, when, you talk about, when you talk about a performer, when you, talk, performer, when yeah. you talk about shows, the shows that are, you know, when you walk into a show that, you know, uh, might be, you're just going to see what it's like, and then suddenly it's magic. Yeah. And that's the beauty of going to lots of shows. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when you really, you'll catch a wave every so often you never thought you'd catch. And so I, that, that's a good example for yeah, you lately. Yeah, yeah. Is there someone new that you love? up and coming well greg had somebody that i I'd, I'd read about but he knew him from philadelphia he had him at the rock hall about a year ago and i just booked him in el dorado uh low cut connie which is this great performer he's new york philly um and just a great entertainer piano player um I urge you to listen to him. I, I urge absolutely you to will. go see him low cut connie i'm a music nut and so i i that's one of the reasons i in my classes, I teach spin and yoga. I play a, the huge variety because I'm I'm pretty obsessed, and I've never heard of him, so I definitely will check him out. Yeah, we and we have an act. Com- we have our music fest coming up at the end of September in Arkansas, and an act that I've listened to a lot, but I've never seen. Um, uh, the New Respects are a young African American group, and they do sort of alternative rock and R and B. Yeah. So I really. Check them out. The new respects. The new and, respects. And then I'm, uh, I, do. the show I did enjoy this past year. Um, I'm on the uh, TV show in Austin City Limits. Do you know that show? Yeah. I'm on that board in Austin. Okay. And so I get to go to the tapings. How fun! And so. Oh my gosh. I wanted to go see of all people. I wanted to see because I want to see him. By he's, you know, he's biggest artist in the world probably, and one of the biggest him and Taylor Swift. But he's he's right up there, and his new album is fabulous. Collaborations, which is Ed Sheeran. Oh, and you saw him. Yeah, and you know he's by himself. Okay, there's nobody else on stage. It's just him. Right, but the collaborations. Yeah, you did I, all those. I really do love. But yes. He Have is... you seen Blow? Have you seen the video for Blow? No. Blow is a song he did with Chris Stapleton and Bruno Mars. Mm. But go online and check out the videos. The video. Only because. Yeah. The videos are all these women doing the song. You won't see Bruno. You won't see Chris. You won't see. And watch it. Then go on YouTube and go on go on Google what's going on here in this video about how he did so many different levels of that and also if you haven't seen see uh um yesterday the movie about the guy uh who he's the only guy that remembers the beatles and yes. ed, ed sheeran's in that movie too ed sheeran is a performer yeah right yes, yeah, and he yeah. i love that jamie fox talks about how he came to his house and slept there for a week yeah. when he was unknown yeah and jamie fox finally let him perform in front of his private group and he was a nobody but he was willing to sleep on his sofa well, for he, a week. Yeah, he and he his first EP that came out, I think it's 2012, of all things, was with an artist that I love who's not real famous, mm-hmm. who was found by Eminem, but who's from my home state of Alabama. It's a, uh, a, a hip-hop artist named Yellow Wolf. And okay. so Yellow Wolf and Ed Sheeran, they made an album together in 2012. I so have I, heard of him, but I didn't know they were together. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So we have... Loka Connie, The New Respects, Yellow Wolf. I'm really liking all these recommendations. Well, this is, you know, uh, people ask me about music. There's more good music than ever. It's just Mm -hmm. harder to find, and it's so much of it. There's so much. You've got to plow through it, and 
no matter, you know, we do focus groups looking for acts and what young people want to see. We have a bunch of colleges fairly close by. And, you know, so many of them will do a focus group and then we'll get 10 artists. And of the 10, eight will be hip hop. And of the eight, probably three or four are SoundCloud rap artists whom I had not found yet. Mm-hmm. But these kids have found them. Mm-hmm. You know, between the YouTubers and the SoundCloud yes. stuff. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm setting on Apple looking at everything new that comes out sort of on a more standard fashion. Mm-hmm. Then I'm trying to back into the stuff on YouTube and SoundCloud, yes. see, see what everybody else is listening to. But, it's, you know, you can st- spend your entire existence doing this. Do you, ha- do you listen to music constantly? Pretty much, yeah. Do you listen in your car? Oh, yeah. yeah. Serious? Yeah, I'm serious. What are your favorite well, serious stations? Well, serious and Apple. <laughs> well, I set on uh, Channel 2, which is hits. Yep. Um, I set on 5 and 6 because I love the 50s and 60s. I set on 49, which is soul. Uh, no, and the heart and soul is 48. Uh, but 49 is uh, Soul Town. Love it. And then 60 is the groove, which is funk. Yes. And then my guilty pleasure is, uh, which is just ended, which is uh, Yacht Rock on 70. Mine too. Obsessed with Yacht Rock. But my other and we have a boat, so that's the yeah. only station that is allowed on the boat during the summer. Uh, my, o- is my, Yacht other, Rock. my other, my other favorite. <laughs> My other favorite channel, which is tied to R&B and early rock and roll, but is one of the weirdest niches in America, if you don't know what. Do you know what beach music is? Yes. Okay. Well, 702, which is online on Sirius, is beach music. Got it. And it's all the stuff that they do the shag to. You know, everybody does this sort of like the bop. It's sort of like Uh the Lindy. They do the shag in the Carolinas. And they do it to these records. And the records... The records go back to the 40s, and kids grew up down there knowing records from the 40s that nobody else in America knows. They also have records from the 60s and 70s, and, and bands are still putting out new shag records down there. Oh, my so, gosh. So, uh, 702, which is uh, beach music. Have you ever wanted to – where do you see – do you see yourself sticking around doing the festival, you know, in Arkansas? Have you ever wanted to get more involved with artists personally or no, do you I, like the side you're on? I, I like the side. It's a better side for me. Yeah. It's my, it fits my personality better. I mean, the only thing I hope to do, and it's 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 been five or six years, as long as I've been in Arkansas, we've been working on this. I um, have some f- partners in Chicago. We're trying to build the first ever blues museum nice. in Chicago, and um, it's we've had we've had we got all the money. We had the location, then we lost the location, lost some of the money. Now we got all the money again. So we're hoping to we're hoping to eventually it's the unfulfilled promise or brand of Chicago because you know people come from around the world to Chicago thinking they're going to hear the blues or see the blues and thinking they can go to a blues museum. There's never a museum in Chicago. There's a there is a small blues museum in St. Louis, but this is about the Chicago blues, which is Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, the 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 songs coming up the river, the Mississippi, and being electrified in Chicago. That's and the relationship that has to artists like the Stones. The Black Keys. Sure. That's what this music, and that's what the, all this music's based on. Yeah. At one level, it's all African American, you know, rhythms and beats and and syncopations and things. But to try to have that museum, if I can, if I can, if I can have one more bite of the apple, if I can have one more thing to do, and it's sort of like we talked about Chicago. I thought I thought everybody should live in New York once. Everybody should live in Chicago once. And everybody should live in California once. I never made it to California. Um, and if that would be a harder place to live now than it would have been back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chicago, I love Chicago. It's such a great town. Um, I, I'm just, I got my fingers crossed. There's an outside chance we might still get that done. So if we do, stay tuned. 
Okay, this is not ending. I feel like we could talk for hours. Well, I, I warned so you. There's many, so many rabbit holes here. So many questions. I'm glad you're a mu- big music fan. I, I am wasn't a huge sure. music fan. Um, and I have a feeling there's a book in all this. Uh, I have a couple of people that want to write the book. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that, again, I, I'm, I'm sensible enough to know that I don't know anybody will read this thing. <laughs> but you know, my oh, wife. My wife would want me. To, my wife wants me to do it, um, and I, because I've been in some interesting places at the right time. Yeah. Uh, and um, even in my business life, which strange as it is, as much as I didn't like it, um, I was at some crossroads with some famous business people that would make interesting anecdotes yes. before I get to the fun stuff. Yes. And growing up in nowhere, oh, it's actually L.A., which is Lower Alabama. Growing <laughs> up in Lower Alabama, in the middle of nowhere during a very different time of segregation in Alabama, but how music changed me and helped, helped change me, plus my parents being from, my dad being from New York and my being different places, all that. There is a, there is a, a gumbo mm-hmm. in there that tells a different story mm-hmm. that if I could tell it, maybe somebody would read it, maybe somebody inspired oh, about it. Oh, I think it. there'd be a ton of readers. So keep your fingers crossed. I'm, I'm working with one of my, one of my friends, uh, a lady that I've known for a long time, who's written a number of books and is very, 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 very smart and knows a lot about music. I mean, I'm hoping that we can get it done. We're, we're, I got my fingers crossed. Well, I will keep everyone posted on how that goes. I thank you so much for talking to me today and it's great information. As we said, take your passion and keep moving with well, it. Well, and it's I, my, my, my sort of phrases are, you gotta do what you love, love what you do. Mm-hmm. But also in that same pro- process, and this is this one's a little bit more abstract. Life is work, and people don't realize it. Sometimes they think they think of work as work, yeah. But life is work. I mean, sure. you're without without li- without work, you have no purpose. And what you need to do is get that passion mm-hmm. into that work, and then suddenly, your PEP, yeah, which I think is really cute. Passion, uh, yeah, perfect. yeah. I mean that that takes over, mm-hmm. and then you win. Absolutely. And even as I say to people, you know, you may be star-crossed and you may never make a lot of money, um, but you'll be better at this and have more fun at it and enjoy it more than anything else. And most people who do what they love, they have more success both financially and certainly emotional dividends are much higher when you Absolutely. do this. So you, you can't uh, you keep doing what you're doing because you like to think you will hit, hit, hit a note with a lot of people or if you hit a note with one person every show who says, wow. I, that's what I believed in. I didn't have the nerve to yeah. do it, or I don't know how to do it, and I got to find somebody to help me do it. Yeah. But you know, have that be your focus. Have that be the crosshairs, and just go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great advice from a great man. Thank you, Terry Stewart. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. somebody to love somebody the way I love you